we would like to send out a special thanks to Best Fiends for supporting The Trail Went Cold. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike other puzzle games out there. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Download free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Thank you, and enjoy the episode. March 8th, 1945. Shelby, Ohio. 34-year-old Mary Jane Van Gilder quits her job at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot after working there for a year. Mary Jane had previously lived in West Virginia with her husband and five children, but after the couple separated, Mary Jane went off on her own to live in Ohio. Even though Mary Jane frequently wrote letters to her oldest daughter, there is no further communication from her after she leaves her job, and she would vanish without explanation. Over the next several decades, Mary Jane's family attempt to figure out what happened to her, but the actual circumstances of how she went missing remain unclear. After that, the trail went cold. Hello everyone and welcome to our latest episode of The Trail Went Cold. I'm your host Robin Warder, and today we're going to be exploring one of the most unique missing persons cases we've ever covered, the 1945 disappearance of Mary Jane Van Gilder. While we sometimes receive requests from victims' family members to cover their loved ones' stories, what makes this particular situation stand out is that it involves an unsolved cold case which is 75 years old. This past summer, Mary Jane Van Gilder's granddaughter, Mindy Wilson, showed up in our podcast Facebook discussion group and asked if I would be willing to do an episode about her grandmother's disappearance. Mary Jane's story has been featured on a couple of true crime podcasts, including Unfound and Missing Persons, and the YouTube series Mysterious WV has also done a pair of episodes about it. All of these episodes, as well as ours, are being produced with the cooperation of the lead investigator, Officer Adam Turner of the Shelby Police Department. He is working diligently to find out what happened to Mary Jane, even though this case has been cold for a very long time. Anyway, prior to her disappearance, Mary Jane Van Gilder was a married mother of five living in West Virginia, but after she separated from her husband, she decided to move to Ohio. After living there for a year and holding down a job, Mary Jane just seemed to completely drop off the face of the earth, and no one from her family would see or hear from her again. It was not until 2018, when Mary Jane's surviving relatives officially filed a missing persons report, which is why this old case has suddenly become an active investigation. Of course, what makes the investigation so difficult is that it's hard to pinpoint when exactly Mary Jane went missing, and there's no real evidence to suggest if she was the victim of foul play, or if she just disappeared voluntarily to start a new life somewhere. In recent years, a few pieces of this puzzle have been uncovered, but there are still a ton of unanswered questions which we will attempt to address on today's episode. However, before we get started, just a quick reminder that The Trail Went Cold is a weekly podcast, which is currently available for download on several platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 
So if you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe to it, and please leave us a rating or review on any of those sites to help spread the word. The Trailwit Cold is on Patreon, so if you would like to learn how to support the show, please visit our page at patreon.com slash thetrailwitcold. For as little as $1 a month, you can garner access to exclusive rewards, which may include stickers and thank you cards, early access to episodes, and bonus content. So with all that out of the way, let us now delve into the unsolved disappearance of Mary Jane Van Gilder. Our story begins in 1945, and our central figure is 34-year-old Mary Jane Van Gilder. Originally born in West Virginia as Mary Jane Croft, the fourth in a family of eight children, she would marry her husband, James Van Gilder, in January of 1929 when she was only 17 years old. The couple lived in Marion County on property belonging to the Van Gilder family, and within two years, they would have their first child, a daughter named Anna May. They went on to have five children in total, though they would also lose a pair of twins in 1935 who were stillborn. Unfortunately, the marriage did not seem to be a happy one, as James was an alcoholic and was allegedly abusive towards Mary Jane, so things reached the point where Mary Jane decided to separate from him in 1943. She left the family home and moved into her own apartment located above a theater in the nearby town of Fairmont and got a job at a local restaurant. James retained custody of their five children, but even though Mary Jane reportedly invited her husband and kids to move to Fairmont with her, James declined. Well, at some point, Mary Jane would move approximately 250 miles to Ohio, and she did not inform anyone in her family about this until after she arrived. It's not entirely clear when exactly Mary Jane made this move, but the earliest record of her in Ohio was when she was hired to work at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot on March the 7th, 1944. The depot was located near Shelby, a small town in Richland County, and it served as a storage and distribution center for aircraft supplies during World War II. Mary Jane started out there working as a storekeeper before she was promoted to junior warehouseman, and by the end of the year, she received an award of emblem for civilian services. Mary Jane maintained contact with her children by sending letters, clothes, and war bonds to her oldest daughter, Anna May, who was 13 years old at the time. In January of 1945, Mary Jane asked Anna May if she would mail the war bonds she had sent them back to her. Even though Mary Jane never provided a reason for this, Anna May complied and returned the bonds, but a few weeks later, Mary Jane mailed one war bond worth $25 back to Anna May. However, this would turn out to be the last contact she ever had with her family. On February the 12th of that year, Mary Jane officially filed a petition for divorce in Huron County, accusing her husband of, quote-unquote, extreme cruelty and gross neglect of duty. That same month, she sent in a request to be transferred to the labor and equipment pool at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot in order to work as a high lift and fork operator. But only a few weeks later, on March the 8th, Mary Jane decided to quit her job there, and according to the official documentation, she cited, quote-unquote, added household duties as the reason for her departure. On November the 23rd, 
James Van Gilder officially filed for divorce in Marion County Circuit Court, and when neither Mary Jane nor her legal counsel responded to his petition within three days, the divorce was granted. As a result, James would receive full custody of their five children, and he remarried the following year. On April 4, 1946, the original divorce petition Mary Jane had filed over one year earlier wound up being dismissed at the quote-unquote plaintiff's costs and request, and on May the 25th, the accrued court costs were deducted from a sum of money Mary Jane had previously deposited with the court. But after this, there is no existing paper trail for Mary Jane, and she has never been heard from again. By the time the 1950s rolled around, Anna May had not made any contact with her mother for years, so she decided to launch her own search effort to track her down. On numerous occasions, Anna May wrote to the FBI asking for assistance, and she would receive response from Director J. Edgar Hoover, who confirmed that the FBI did not have jurisdiction to open an investigation since this was not a federal crime, so he advised Anna May to contact local law enforcement agencies for assistance. When Anna May was communicating with her mother, all of their correspondence was sent to and from an apartment on 2 Truck Street in the town of Plymouth. However, it turned out that Mary Jane had apparently resided at no less than three separate addresses during her time in Ohio. Even though the FBI cannot open their own investigation, they were able to provide Anna May with documentation which showed that she had lived in an apartment on 311 Woodland Avenue in the town of Willard, located about 20 miles north of the Shelby Army Air Force Depot and 7 miles north of Plymouth. When Anna May attempted to write to Mary Jane at this address, the letter was returned with a notation that no such person lived there. Anna May received another break when she contacted the U.S. Treasury Department and provided them with the number on the last war bond she had received from her mother. They eventually responded with a letter in which they stated that various bonds in Mary Jane's name which listed Anna May as the beneficiary, had been paid by the People's National Bank of Plymouth and cashed on various dates in 1945. But curiously, the letter listed 19 Sandusky Street, which happened to be a rooming house, as the address Mary Jane provided during a request for a redemption of the bonds. This address was also located in Plymouth, but the Treasury Department told Anna May that when they attempted to send a letter there, it was returned unclaimed. Anna May also corresponded with the Ohio State Patrol and learned that Mary Jane had given up her apartment at the Truck Street address around the time she left the Shelby Army Air Force Depot. As an interesting aside, the Huron County-Richland County line is located right in the middle of Plymouth, so even though Mary Jane's separate addresses on Sandusky Street and Truck Street were only about 100 yards apart from each other, they were technically located in two separate counties. The Ohio State Patrol also informed Anna May that during their investigation, they learned a former associate of Mary Jane's had reportedly seen her in the streets of Willard weeks after her departure from her job, but no further details were provided. However, the biggest obstacle against opening an official missing persons investigation for Mary Jane is that no one could figure out which law enforcement agency should handle the case, as she originally hailed from West Virginia worked in Shelby, and had seemingly lived at three separate addresses in two different counties during her time in Ohio. Anna May even tried contacting the Social Security Administration for assistance, but the problem was that no one from Mary Jane's family had any record of her Social Security number, 
and it was unclear if she even had one to begin with. The years continued to go by without any word from Mary Jane, and when her mother passed away in 1963, she never showed up to attend the funeral. According to their children, James rarely ever spoke of Mary Jane before he died in December of 1985. Shortly thereafter, the family's home in Marion County burned down because of a chimney fire, so any potential documentation that might have remained for Mary Jane, including the letter she wrote to Anna May, was likely destroyed. In December of 2004, the Plymouth Journal published an article about Mary Jane's disappearance, asking for anyone who had information about the case to contact one of her granddaughters, Misty James. Well, Misty soon received a letter from a Willard residence named William King, who had lived in the area during the 1940s and actually remembered Mary Jane. At the time, King was 13 years old, and he claimed that his father and two brothers had worked with Mary Jane at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot, and their family became friends with her. They often gave Mary Jane rides to work because she did not drive or own a vehicle, but they eventually went their separate ways, and unfortunately, King could not offer any insight into her disappearance. In April of 2018, Mary Jane's granddaughter, Mindy Wilson, decided to contact Chief Lance Combs of the Shelby Police Department in order to officially file a missing persons report for the very first time. A new investigation was eventually opened and assigned to Officer Adam Turner, who would undergo the challenge of tackling an unsolved cold case which was seven decades old. Turner could not find any original documentation which listed Mary Jane as a missing person, and since her fingerprints, dental records, and DNA were not on file, all he really had to work with were a couple of surviving photographs. However, Turner figured out that his most potentially effective strategy would be to research cases involving unidentified female decedents. For the first time, Mary Jane's case was entered into a number of online databases including the Charlie Project, the Doe Network, and the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, aka NamUs. While searching through the Find a Grave website, Turner came across a grave for an unidentified Jane Doe who had been found dead in Preble County, Ohio on May 25, 1968. Her skull was found in a wooded area by a group of children, and when they contacted the police, her decomposed body was discovered nearby. While the coroner could not determine her exact cause of death, she was believed to be between 30 to 50 years old. It was estimated that the victim had been buried at that location for around 10 to 15 years before heavy rain caused her remains to rise to the surface. Since she could not be identified, the victim was buried as a Jane Doe at Mount Hill Cemetery in the town of Eaton. There were enough similarities between Mary Jane and the description of the Jane Doe that Officer Turner decided to contact the Preble County Coroner's Office. They made arrangements for the victim's body to be exhumed, and Preble County even offered to cover the costs. The exhumation took place in August of 2019, and while there were still skeletal remains inside the victim's casket, her skull and mandible were missing. It was theorized that they may have been donated to a local public school which was apparently a common practice for unidentified skeletal remains during that time period. There was hope that DNA could be taken from the Jane Doe and compared with DNA from Mary Jane's surviving relatives, but unfortunately, the DNA strand on the remains has been broken due to the bones having degraded over time. So at the time of this recording, 
all attempts to extract a viable DNA sample have been unsuccessful. Nevertheless, this is far from the only unidentified decedent whom Officer Turner has attempted to link to this case, and over the past few years, a number of Jane Doe's have either been excluded as being Mary Jane through DNA testing, or are currently being investigated. And there's also been another unexpected recent development. It was initially believed that most of the documentation about Mary Jane's tenure at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot was long gone due to an infamous fire that took place at the National Personnel Records Center in Overland, Missouri in July of 1973, which destroyed approximately 16 to 18 million military personnel records. However, Turner recently learned that the civilian personnel records from World War II were actually stored at another location, the National Archives in St. Louis, and sure enough, it turned out that Mary Jane's original personnel file from the depot was still there. The contents of the file would shed some additional light on her time in Ohio, but also provided more unanswered questions. For example, Anna Mae was named as Mary Jane's only child under her list of dependents, but there was no mention at all of her other four children. However, the biggest break was that the file provided Mary Jane's social security number, which may prove to be a valuable piece of information for tracking any movement she might have made after March of 1945. But for the moment at least, the actual circumstances of how Mary Jane Van Gilder went missing remain a mystery. So I guess you could say, the trail went cold. But before we continue, we would like to take a moment to say thanks to our sponsor, Best Fiends. When you finish binging the latest riveting podcast on your list, there's always one lingering question staring you in the face. Now what? What is the next step when the trail has gone completely cold? Sure, you could deep dive down the Wikipedia wormhole researching everything related to the show. Honestly, has anyone with an interest in cold cases not done this? I know that I definitely do this when putting together one of these episodes, but when your brain or your browser tabs are full to the brim, it might be time to take a load off. That's when I like to clear a few levels on Best Fiends. This is a game which can best be described as boredom's worst nightmare. Best Fiends is the infamously impossible to put down puzzle game with over 100 million downloads and counting. It's free to download and has literally millions of 5-star reviews on the Apple App Store and Google Play. More levels, events, and challenges get added all the time, so have no fear about playing away because there's always one more level. More levels, events, and challenges get added all the time. Seriously, once you download Best Fiends, boredom won't stand a chance. I've been playing Best Fiends for a year now and have nearly made it to level 800. It often provides a rush of adrenaline whenever you beat a level, and the game also helps me decompress between research and recording sessions. So download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of this episode. Anyway, this is definitely one of the more unique cold cases I've ever featured on The Trail Went Cold, but it's also one of the most frustrating. Like I mentioned in the intro, 
While it's become a common practice for family members of missing persons to contact true crime podcasts and ask them to spread awareness about their stories, it's not often such a thing occurs with cases that are this old. In this particular case, the relative who contacted me, Mindy Wilson, was not even born at the time her grandmother went missing. Mindy's own mother, Barbara Van Gilder McGowan, has since passed away, but her aunt, Anna May, is still alive at nearly 90 years old and seeking answers about what happened. Of course, Anna May has been trying to track down her mother for nearly three quarters of a century, and her memory is very important since she was the last known person to communicate with Mary Jane. While there's zero chance that Mary Jane is still alive today, it's quite refreshing to see that law enforcement is actively investigating her disappearance. All the credit in the world should go to Officer Adam Turner of the Shelby Police Department, who has been working incredibly hard to find a resolution for Mary Jane's family, even though I'm sure it must have been quite difficult to take on such an old missing persons case, which has very little in the way of available evidence. I definitely appreciate his strategy of researching online databases and attempting to match up unidentified decedents with Mary Jane. You might recall that nearly two months ago, I released an episode about Marcia King, a young woman who was found murdered in Miami County, Ohio in April of 1981. She remained a Jane Doe named Buckskin Girl for 37 years before she was finally identified by the DNA Doe Project through the usage of DNA analysis and genetic genealogy. This identification took place around the same time that a missing persons report was officially filed for Mary Jane, and I'm sure that case has influenced the investigation. Even if Officer Turner's leads involving these Jane Does do not pan out, exhuming and extracting DNA from the remains only increases the chances of solving additional cases, so it's pretty much a no-lose situation. While it might be a long shot that Mary Jane is the aforementioned Jane Doe from Preble County, if it somehow leads to this victim getting her identity back, that's a major silver lining. I also need to give a ton of credit to the YouTube series Mysterious WV, which exclusively covers mysteries from West Virginia. The host slash creator, Sean McCracken, was able to uncover some key pieces of documentation from the archives, which proved incredibly helpful with piecing together Mary Jane's movements during the final years of her life. He originally released an episode about this case in August of last year, but just over a month ago, he dropped an all-new update episode which covered the recent developments involving Mary Jane's personnel file. The file finally revealed Mary Jane's social security number for the first time, and given the amount of time that has passed, Mysterious WV was authorized to give out the number in their recent video in case it helped lead to new information, so I will be doing the same thing at the end of this episode. Now, while the personnel file helped add some additional pieces to what has become a massive jigsaw puzzle, it still feels like there are a lot of missing pieces which need to be recovered. At this point, there is really no definitive evidence to suggest what might have happened to Mary Jane. While it's possible she was the victim of foul play, you also cannot completely rule out the idea that she decided to cut off all contact with her family and disappeared voluntarily to start a new life, which would have been a lot easier to do in the pre-digital world of the 1940s. For all we know, she could have lived a long life and died of natural causes somewhere, and no one has been able to put two and two together. 
Well, there are additional complications involving Mary Jane's life which need to be addressed, one of which is the fact that the final child she gave birth to did not actually belong to her husband, James. It turned out that Mary Jane carried on an extramarital affair with a man named Delbert Cowger, who had worked on the family's property. She became pregnant, and James was apparently aware of this, but he still continued to raise this child after Mary Jane went missing. And believe it or not, after he officially divorced Mary Jane, the woman James got remarried to was Delbert's sister, Virginia Cowger, and he would go on to have more children with her. As for Delbert, he was in the military during the time period Mary Jane went missing and had been stationed in Maryland near Baltimore before he was sent overseas. Now, James and Mary Jane did not separate until two years after she gave birth to Delbert's child, so it's unclear if this played any role in her decision to leave. We're going to talk more about this angle in a little while, but first, I want to talk about an additional complication which has arisen since the new investigation was opened two years ago. It seems like Mary Jane's case now has its own mystery within a mystery, as Mary Jane's sister, Rose, also went missing under unexplained circumstances during the same time period. Rose lived in Fairmont, West Virginia, and married a man named Harold Leeson in July of 1934. They had children together, but at some point during the 1940s, Rose apparently left home, and no one knows what happened to her. In the late 1960s, one of Rose's sons supposedly received a letter from some sort of medical facility in the New York area, which stated that Rose was currently residing there because she was sick. He subsequently told one of Mary Jane's children about this, but since no one knows where the original letter is today, this story is based on nothing more than hearsay. Since there's no official record anywhere of Rose ever having been reported missing, and all of her children are currently deceased, that's pretty much all the information which is available about her story. For all we know, Rose's disappearance might be a completely separate issue which has nothing to do with Mary Jane's case, but it does seem incredibly odd that two sisters from the same family would just disappear without explanation during the 1940s and break off all contact with everyone. It's certainly possible that Rose and Mary Jane could have disappeared together, but there don't seem to be any details available about Rose's marriage and whether or not she would have been unhappy enough with her situation to run away. However, during the research for one of their episodes, Mysterious WV was able to uncover the original obituary for the two sisters' mother, Anna Croft, who passed away in June of 1963. It lists both Mary Jane and Rose as surviving relatives, and seems to imply that they were living with their other sister, Anna Williams, at that time. Now, it's possible the information in the obituary is inaccurate, but it's also worth mentioning that when one of their brothers, Donald Croft, passed away in June of 1971, his obituary listed Anna Williams as his only surviving sister, and made no mention of Mary Jane or Rose. And there's one more odd detail in Mary Jane's personnel file from the Shelby Army Air Force Depot. In one section, Mary Jane was asked to list all of her siblings, and for some reason, Rose is listed as Rosie Ashcraft. Since census records showed that Rose was married to Harold Leeson until at least 1940, no one has any idea why she would have been listed under the surname Ashcraft. And while we're on the subject of weird discrepancies in Mary Jane's personnel file, 
It's also a big mystery why Anna May is listed as her only child. Was this just a clerical error? Or did Mary Jane intentionally lie about the number of children she had? Would she have done this for fear that she might not get hired if they knew she had five children? There's also the fact that the paperwork cites quote-unquote added household duties as the reason for Mary Jane's departure from her job. This would make sense for a mother with five children, but of course, her husband was raising her kids in an entirely different state, and as far as anyone knows, Mary Jane was living alone at that time. The file also showed that only a few weeks before she quit, Mary Jane requested a transfer to another department to work as a high lift and fork operator, so you have to wonder what compelled her to leave. Of course, since World War II would soon be coming to an end, the depot was likely going to start laying people off anyway, so perhaps she saw the writing on the wall. There's also been confusion about Mary Jane having lived at three separate addresses during her time in Ohio. When she first started working at the depot, Mary Jane lived in Willard, and I can understand why she might have felt compelled to move. Willard was 20 miles from her workplace, whereas Plymouth was located 7 miles closer, which meant a shorter commute. But why would she have lived at two separate addresses in Plymouth, located about 100 yards apart? The earliest paperwork from Mary Jane's personnel file lists her Willard address at 311 Woodland Avenue when she started working there, and documentation from a job review dated on September the 30th, 1944, lists her address as 2 Truck Street in Plymouth. So she obviously moved there at some point during the year, and a letter from the Ohio State Patrol confirmed that Mary Jane gave up her apartment on Truck Street around the time she quit her job in March of 1945. However, the personnel file makes no mention of her address at the rooming house on 19 Sandusky Street, and it sounds like the only documentation which mentions it is a letter Anna May received from the U.S. Treasury Department stating it was the most recent address she had provided in a request for redemption of the war bonds. What's particularly odd is that Mary Jane cashed these bonds in early 1945 and it seems like she was already living at the Truck Street address by that point, so how does this Sandusky Street address fit in with everything? Was she staying at this rooming house and living in her apartment at the same time? Whatever the case, since Mary Jane ultimately gave up her apartment on Truck Street, this implies that she was planning to move elsewhere after leaving her job. Well, before we delve into this any further, we have to go back and discuss Mary Jane's life in West Virginia before she moved to Ohio. It does sound like her marriage to her husband James might have been a tumultuous one, as there were allegations of alcoholism and possible abuse, and like I mentioned earlier, Mary Jane's final child was conceived during an extramarital affair with another man, Delbert Calger. Much like the disappearance of Rose, this affair might not have any relevance to this story, but it's still worth mentioning. One potential theory is that Mary Jane might have left Ohio to go see Delbert while he was stationed in Maryland, but there has never been any evidence that Mary Jane became involved with other men after she split from her husband. Even so, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about why she left West Virginia. Mary Jane's decision to leave all of her children with James to move to the nearby town of Fairmont is one thing, but to travel 250 miles to an entirely different state and not inform your family about it until after you've arrived is another. I mean, we are talking about the 1940s, 
long before instant communication was a thing. But it just seems odd that Mary Jane would not at least let her children know about this beforehand. Though I guess if things turned out really bad in her relationship with James, perhaps Mary Jane had her reasons for not wanting him to know she was leaving. But even so, the big unanswered question is, why did she select this particular region of Ohio? Well, the town of Shelby reportedly did send out a notice asking for workers at the Shelby Army Air Force Depot who could help contribute to the war effort. So if Mary Jane ever received one, that could have influenced her decision to move there. According to her personnel file, Mary Jane provided a number of personal references from Fairmont on her original security questionnaire. They included James Betts, the manager of the Fairmont restaurant, where Mary Jane had been employed until February of 1944, a tax collector named Joe Doringer, a retired railroad employee named Tom Ford, a teacher named A. Page King, and a laborer named Fred Haskins. While it's unlikely that any of those people are still alive, they may have been able to provide some potential insight into why Mary Jane moved to Ohio. The only person who has ever been able to provide a first-hand account of interacting with Mary Jane during her time in Ohio is William King, though of course, he shared his story 60 years after the fact. King said that his father and brothers often gave Mary Jane rides to work because she could not drive, but it doesn't sound like he gave off any indication that she might have been romantically involved or living with someone else. Now, one of the strangest details of this entire case is that Mary Jane was frequently sending war bonds to her children during her correspondence with Anna May, but in the months prior to her disappearance, she suddenly asked Anna May to mail the bonds back to her. Mary Jane then subsequently mailed a $25 war bond to her daughter before their communications came to an abrupt end. On the surface, this suggests that Mary Jane needed some quick money for something, and after she cashed the bonds and used the money, Perhaps she was making a gradual attempt to buy more bonds and mail them back to her children to replace the ones which they sent to her. There are any number of possible reasons why Mary Jane might have needed this money. It could have had something to do with her moving to another residence, but maybe she was looking into purchasing a vehicle so she wouldn't have to keep accepting rides from everyone. According to Mary Jane's personnel file, she requested a transfer to get a new position as a high lift and fork operator in February of 1945, and the written description of the job stated that it required the ability to drive an auto. While there's no record of Mary Jane ever having a driver's license, this might have been what motivated her to finally get one and buy a car. Of course, she ultimately chose to quit, but if she wanted to leave the area and start over somewhere, having her own vehicle would have made it a lot easier to relocate. It's also interesting how Mary Jane decided to file a petition for divorce from James in February of that year. If Mary Jane needed money for legal representation, that provides another potential explanation for her cashing the war bonds. And if the high lift and fork operator position paid a higher salary to help cover potential legal costs, that also might explain a request for a transfer. However, given that they had been separated for nearly two years, and Mary Jane was living in Ohio for one year, what suddenly compelled her to file for divorce at this particular time? This once again fuels speculation that Mary Jane could have met someone else, which is why she wanted to officially bring an end to her marriage. Well, it turned out there would not be a legal battle, 
as James himself filed a petition for divorce in November of that year and was granted full custody of the children when Mary Jane failed to respond. Of course, given the allegations of abuse and the fact that James got remarried shortly thereafter, it would be tempting to believe that he might have been personally responsible for Mary Jane's disappearance, but with the information we have available, there's no way to conclusively prove or disprove that scenario after all these years. He lived 250 miles away in West Virginia, and since we can't even pinpoint an exact time or place when Mary Jane officially went missing, it's impossible to ascertain what type of alibi James may or may not have had. I mean, we have a gap of around 8 months between the last time Mary Jane was confirmed to be alive and when James filed for divorce. Anna May has stated that she recalls one occasion when her father and Mary Jane's brother, Lester Croft, supposedly took a trip to Plymouth and found Mary Jane, and while it's unclear when exactly this took place, it presumably occurred before she went missing. I have to admit that I was a bit confused after I saw that Mary Jane's original divorce petition was dismissed in April of 1946 at the quote-unquote plaintiff's costs and requests, as this was one year after the last confirmed communication from her. I initially took that as an indication that Mary Jane herself personally requested the dismissal, but the decision was likely made by the court or possibly her legal counsel, so this does not prove that Mary Jane was still alive in 1946. I should also make one more mention of the letter Anna May received from the Ohio State Patrol, where they claimed that a former associate of Mary Jane's reported seeing her in the weeks after she quit her job at the depot. Unfortunately, there are no other details about this, including the identity of the person who allegedly saw her, but my biggest issue with this sighting is that it supposedly took place in the streets of Willard. While Mary Jane was living in Willard at the time she started her job in March of 1944, her personnel file confirms that she was living in Plymouth at the time she quit. Of course, that certainly doesn't preclude the possibility of Mary Jane visiting Willard sometime after she left her job, but it does make me wonder if the eyewitness might have been mistaken about having seen her or just got mixed up about the time period. After all, mistaken eyewitness sightings are very common in missing persons cases, so I'm not sure how much stock you can put into this one. But based on what we know, could Mary Jane have disappeared on her own, or was she the victim of foul play? Of course, any theory we dream up is going to be based on pure speculation due to the lack of hard evidence and available information. But in my eyes, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mary Jane would ask her daughter to send back the war bonds, file for divorce from her husband, and then quit her job in a span of two months. At the very least, this does suggest that Mary Jane was planning some sort of upheaval in her life before she disappeared. When you couple in the listing of added household duties in Mary Jane's personnel file, this does make me wonder if she was planning to move in with someone. I'd hate to think she was the type of person who would just run away and cut off all contact from her children, but unfortunately, this means the alternate explanation is that she came to harm at the hands of an unknown individual and did not live for much longer after March of 1945. The only hard facts we know are that Mary Jane lived in Ohio and worked a job there for one year while supposedly residing at three different addresses. But other than the account from William King, we really don't have much idea of what her life was like during this time period, so there are endless possibilities about what might have happened. 
Of course, there's no chance that Mary Jane is still alive today, but her loved ones do deserve answers, and I'm very grateful that we have someone like Officer Adam Turner, who is still attempting to find answers after all this time. So if you happen to have any information about the disappearance of Mary Jane Van Gilder, please contact Officer Turner at the Shelby Police Department at 419-347-2242. That's 419-347-2242. Also, I mentioned earlier that Mary Jane's recently uncovered social security number has now become public knowledge, and given the amount of time that has passed, I'm going to read it out here in case it helps bring about any new leads. Her social security number is 234-32-0125. That's 234-32-0125. If you'd like to learn more about this case, be sure to listen to the episodes of the Unfound and Missing Persons podcasts, and I'd highly recommend the two episodes of the Mysterious WV YouTube series, which has been instrumental at spreading as much information about this story as possible. And if you just have your own thoughts about what happened, feel free to leave me a comment or send me an email to robin.warder at icloud.com. That's robin.warder at icloud.com. Now the reminder that The Trail Went Cold is on Patreon, so please visit patreon.com slash thetrailwentcold to learn how you can support our podcast and become eligible for some pretty neat rewards. We produced a bunch of exclusive bonus episodes for our patrons in tiers 2 and 3, and this past month, I released an episode about an unsolved mystery from the life of the most famous mystery writer of all time, Agatha Christie, who went missing in 1926 before she resurfaced 11 days later, and there are still a lot of unanswered questions about the circumstances of how and why she disappeared. And for our patrons in tier 3, I've also recorded another new audio commentary track, which can be played over a classic episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So to learn more information, feel free to visit our Patreon page. I'd also like to give a shout out to our most recent listeners who have signed up with us on Patreon this week, and they are Ruth, Andy W., Amanda B., Heather S., Cole H., and Christy Ann. Thank you all so much for your support. And before I bring this episode to a close, I'd like to play a promo for another true crime podcast, Keystone State of Mind. Hey guys, I'm Steph, the host of Keystone State of Mind, the podcast. If you're into true crime, urban legends, and the dark side of history, then you'll love my show. In each episode, I tell a story from the dark side of Pennsylvania history. But you don't have to hail from the Keystone State to enjoy this podcast. You just need an interest in history and a dark sense of humor. Some topics I've covered on Keystone State of Mind are serial killer Gary Heidnick, the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster, the Kecksburg UFO incident, and the mysterious death of Jonathan Luna. There are over 25 episodes to binge right now, so go find Keystone State of Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. In addition... I also wanted to provide another reminder that for the past several months, I have been hosting live streaming sessions on a platform called Get Vocal. Every Thursday night from 7 until 8 p.m. Eastern Time, I host what is essentially an after show for each week's podcast episode, where I have an interactive discussion about the featured case from said episode and answer questions and take comments from listeners. 
I always include a link to these sessions in our show notes of every episode, so be sure to check there for more information, or visit getvocal.com. That's G-E-T-V-O-K-L dot com. I also just wanted to give another shout-out to my supporters at the Unsolved Mysteries message board at the Sitcoms Online forum and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. I need to provide a big thanks to Miguel Foote, who edits and assembles this podcast together for me, and Vince Nitro, who composes the eerie music you hear on every episode. If you haven't already, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. So have yourself a good week, and join us next Wednesday for another brand new episode of The Trail Went Cold. (laughs) 